Bet365 sponsors the Tifo Football Podcast and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sport. The new season has begun and Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. And with over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live with Bet365 Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company and you can download the app from Google Play and the Apple App Store right now. It's over 18s only though, and please gamble responsibly. Welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. There is no Joe this week. He's on holiday, but you do get me and Alex. Hello, Alex. Hello, Seb. What are we I nearly to... I, I nearly said hello, Joe, just like out of knee-jerk force of habit. It's kind of like a vocal muscle memory. It's uh, weird, isn't it? Yeah, it is a little bit strange. I feel like uh, I feel like anything is possible. We could just talk about anything, and there's no there's no adult in the room, basically. So, mm. what are we going to talk about? We um we are going to preview the season ahead, uh, but we're not going to pick league winners or top goal scorers or anything like that going to instead cycle through a few categories have a little bit of a chat about each one like we did in the last podcast during the uh, during the Everton section and I'm going to see what we come up with and we're going to do that after a, a short break and after I urge you to subscribe to The Athletic and more importantly to get 40% off when you do so by signing up at theathletic.com forward slash TIFO transfers and you should because um, there are lots of good things on The Athletic at the moment the PL60 series is excellent the uh, the sporting comeback section, ditto. That's been that's been excellent. Alex, have you um, have you read anything of note lately? I've been keeping up with the transfer stuff, so the the behind the scenes stories of of how people came to be signed. Because obviously, having put all of this enormous amount of work into the sensible transfer series, as we did, then learning the intricacies of how actual moves happen has been uh, fascinating. You've also written a few things yourself on there. Do you want to tell us a little bit about those? Uh, yeah, so I, I wrote a piece about uh, Hoiberg when he joined Spurs, um, just looking at what he will offer Spurs. I think that that's going to be an interesting move to see this season. Uh, I've also had a look at why everyone wants to sign Ben White, uh, which is obviously relevant because he's just signed a four-year contract with Brighton. Um, so he's not going anywhere. Uh, so that'll be more of an indication of what he could offer Brighton. And I've got a piece coming out very shortly on five WSL players to watch uh, in the forthcoming season. And I haven't gone for any obvious names. Well, one may be slightly obvious, but uh, there's there's a, a huge amount of talent coming into the WSL this season. So I've, I've had a look at some of the players that maybe slip under the radar uh, and aren't the big names like uh, Peniel Harder and Sam Kerr and Viv Medima, that kind of thing. Sam Kerr, who had an absolute shocker at Wembley over the weekend. I've never seen anything quite like it. Uh, yes, yes, that is true. But that that Chelsea lineup now is is just looking outrageously strong. So uh, they they have to be odds on to retain the title. I think. Right, go and sign up. We'll take a, a very short break, and then we're going to come back for our nice long rambling chat. So here we are. First category is going to be the biggest disappointment. Now, this is intentionally vague because I don't just want to focus in on summer signings. So we, the whole uh, the whole European football landscape is in play. 
Alex, kick us off. If you have to pick something that you think is going to be quite underwhelming between now and the end of the season, where are we starting? We're starting with Chelsea, <laughs> perhaps <laughs> slightly controversially. Um, the reason for this is that they have had one of the all-time transfer windows. Um, so, you know, assuming Havertz joins, uh, Ziyech, uh, Timo Werner, you know, Malang Zar on a free transfer, quite astute. Thiago Silva brings leadership and experience. It all looks very, very good on paper. But I have two concerns. Concern one is they haven't yet recruited a goalkeeper. And Kepa is historically bad by Premier League terms. Um, he he had a, a dismal season last season. And I think unless they address that area, obviously there's there's clearly a weakness at the back. I also just think in terms of the outlay, what you have here is a discrepancy between what they've spent and the aspirations that then come about because of that. So, so far it's 128 million. We can assume that Havertz will join for anything upwards of, of 80. So that's gonna push them beyond the 200 million bracket. By comparison, City have spent 71. United will have spent 40 or so once Van der Beek is on the dotted line. Arsenal have spent 30.6 and Liverpool 11.7. Now, Chelsea are therefore almost certainly going to be targeting the title, right? If you spend that much money, that has to be the aspiration. But I can't realistically see that happen. At best, I think they're looking for Champions League places. Um, but, you know, that, that should be nailed on. Having said that, there are a lot of good teams out there. And I can't see Chelsea upsetting the Liverpool-Man City duopoly. And I just think for that kind of outlay the the uh, expectations of the fans and the board are going to be disappointed. You know what really troubles me about Chelsea is that it's not necessarily the players that they've brought in. It's the clash of cultures that they've kind of created with their summer activity. So obviously last year they were built around this nucleus, nucleus kind of overword, overused word in relation to Chelsea, but nevertheless, nucleus of developing talent. And you've brought all these players through from the academy and they've all had roughly the same set of experiences. They've shared the same coaches. A lot of them have been in the same youth teams. And then a year in, you spend all this money on players that have had a very different upbringing, uh, will be arriving at the club on what I presume are some very high wages. And you kind of split your team down the middle. I expect Timo Werner to go straight into the side. Harvard clearly is going to go straight into the side. Thiago Silva probably <coughs> will too. Ziyech, I'd imagine, will play on the opposite side to Werner. And so you have you have almost a kind of you you have two distinct camps. Whereas I don't know. I think I I, I have no problem with any of the signings. Although I, I think Chilwell maybe I think we've covered this before, but I think probably a little bit overpriced. It's more that instead of adding players piece by piece and integrating them that way, it's almost, you, you've ripped out half of your side in the middle of two seasons, which is, it's a strange dynamic. It's kind of one of those intangibles, but it makes me feel slightly uncomfortable about Chelsea. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and you, you know, yes, obviously there is a core of really talented young players there, but it's very, very hard to see, for example, unless Lampard, who let's also be realistic, has yet to convince, certainly as a defensive coach, uh, unless he radically alters the formations that he's been comfortable with, then one of Christian Pulisic or Tammy Abraham is going to largely miss out. 
either of those would be a massive shame. Um, I think the midfield balance still needs to be worked out. I, I think they've they've crammed a lot in, but there's players, particularly in in England terms, with Abraham and potentially Tamori, who may be missing out now and having shown significant promise in Abraham's case I think more than promise you know actual ability um, they're going to be pushed down the pecking order and I, and I think that is a shame in a wider sense as well but I think you're right to the the squad dynamics you know that was that was very much Chelsea's narrative particularly at the beginning of the season you know they'd come out of the transfer uh, embargo the Lampard young English coach closely associated with the club, bringing all of these guys through. People like Mason Mount, Tammy Abraham, Tamori, Rhys James. They have done very well when they've been called upon. And and I think upsetting that dynamic rather than continuing with it and embracing that as the means to success is is a shame. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, you mentioned Mason Mount, and that's a really interesting one because I thought one of the, the virtues of uh, Chelsea's environment last season was the ability to with a player like Mount, allow allow a slight downturn in form, but then persevere with the player and reap the benefits of that. Mount started the season quite well, sort of dropped off a little bit as as autumn turned to winter, uh, and then just before the um, just before the Premier League restart after the the COVID shutdown, really came back strongly and played some of the best football of the season of his season even. Now you start adding in some of these players. And you just think maybe, okay, so the chance for the opportunity to have a couple of games off form or, you know, have a you know a few bad performances, all of a sudden that's kind of gone for some of these young players. And I just worry whether, I mean, Mount maybe, Abraham probably not, Pulisic is probably a different case because of where he came from and how much he, he arrived for. But uh, I wonder what effect, because it could depend on the personality of the player involved. How are, you, how, how are these players going to respond to that, to the different nature of the challenge? It's really interesting. It's like a fascinating little subplot of next season. Yeah, and I think with Chelsea, you know, they they've they have had this uh, again to to overuse the word, but narrative around them of assembling a really really deep pool of young talent uh, and then frittering it away on a series of loan deals. This was one of the issues, for example, with Callum Hudson-Odoi, who who is still at the club and, again, looks like somebody who just maybe doesn't fit in now because of who they've got there. But those players will have been looking at, at what happened with the embargo and with Lampard's start to the season and thinking, actually, you know, I, I'm not going to be sent away to Belgium to, to play on loan yep. for another season. You know, this finally I have a chance at a club and, and these players are good enough you know that's the thing if you if you look through the numbers um, people like Tamori James you know they, they, they're very very solid players James is an excellent player um, he's re- yeah, really really absolutely. excellent player. I mean it just just further you know England's depth at, at right back is is just extraordinary at the moment um, it's a shame you can't quite say the same for the left but looking at, at the players who've come in and trying to envisage the sort of system that Lampard might choose to use. For example, if, if you're playing Havertz as a 10, then I can't see Mason Mount working particularly well in a double pivot. If you're playing Havertz as, as an inside right, then ZX's not playing. So how do you balance all of these different 
guys also, like you say, integrating within a squad dynamic. It just seems to me that there's there's the potential there for, I don't, I don't want to say unrest, but, but players becoming really disappointed with the change in circumstances. Um, because they want to be playing, you know, and, and these, these particularly these young English players will have aspirations for the national team. Some of them, like Mount, are already playing quite regularly. Others are on the periphery of the squad. And I can see that being really, really hampered by, you know, without doubt, a series of very, very good acquisitions um, that should be transformative for Chelsea. But I can see lots of issues around them. Having said we were going to take a slightly different approach to this, I'm going to take a real left hand now and talk about Manchester United. How shocking. Um, <laughs> you mentioned them a few minutes ago, and uh, we're recording this on a Tuesday evening, and we're expecting the Donny van der Beek transfer to be concluded at some point in the next couple of hours. Talk to me about that because I really like van der Beek, I, I think he's a lovely footballer. He was, uh, I'm a Tottenham fan, and I remember last summer, uh, everyone sort of, everyone obviously was enraptured by Frankie de Jong, but I thought there was, a, there was a, an absolute bargain to be had in van der Beek. I think he's a very complete footballer. I think he gives a, a really solid contribution in, in, in both directions. Uh, as an attacking force, he was exactly what Spurs needed, I think, still is. Uh, unfortunately, they haven't, um, they haven't followed through their interest. At Man United, I look at that midfield, and I think you and I, I don't know whether we had these these conversations on the pod or just in private. He's not the player that that midfield needs. Discuss. Yeah, tricky, isn't it? I mean, United have kind of pinned their colours to the mast, really, with, with Bruno Fernandes. Um, I know that some people off the back of our last discussion on the podcast pointed out that, that Fernandes had played a deeper role at uh, Sporting, which is sort of true. I mean, he basically did still line up as a 10, but he kind of had the freedom of the pitch playing for Sporting and could go wherever he liked. So he was creating opportunities from deeper. But at United, he's very much the kind of um, the hub of that uh, attacking quartet. You know, he's he's the guy who probes and creates the opportunities and is the focal point for the, the ball progression from deep midfield. So it then makes it very, very difficult to see how Fernandez doesn't play in the 10 role, particularly because he, you know, he excelled last season. There's, yeah. there's no doubt at all that once he came in, United were a completely different side. Uh, Paul Pogba adapted fantastically well to playing in a double pivot, which a lot of people said he couldn't. We did a video a while back on on why Mourinho wasn't getting the best out of Pogba because he was playing him in a double pivot. And there's there's very strong arguments to say that, that Pogba is best when he's able to roam forwards. But this is a very, very intelligent footballer with a huge repertoire of skill. And ultimately, you know, he's, he's playing where he's been asked to and he's doing a good job there. Van der Beek, you know, he offers a goal threat going forwards. He's a very smart footballer. He's a very astute presser. Um, I don't think... You know, physically, the Premier League is going to be a massive step up for him. That Ajax side are very robust. They're very fit. But if I were Man United and I was going to spend serious money on an Ajax midfielder, I'd be buying Gravenberch because I, I'm i looking at that United midfield and still seeing that there isn't somebody to come in and take Matic's mantle. I'm not entirely convinced by McTominay in that role, and there is even some conversation that McTominay might actually want to drop back. Um, and I, I just think that the, the, 
the consideration in that midfield now should be solidity, ball winning, positional acumen. And while Van der Beek is a great midfielder, I don't think he's what Man United need. Uh, I also can't see them switching to a three-man midfield. And a three-man midfield with Pogba on one side and Van der Beek on the other side would be sumptuous if there was a, a decent holder in the middle. But Bruno Fernandes is not going to be budged from the 10 spot. So, yeah, he's a good signing, but I think you're right. I think he's he's not necessarily the right signing for United at the present time. That Fernandes point. So one of the things that really caught my eye towards the end of the season was not just his work in the number 10 spot, but how often he would regularly go up to and beyond the defensive line. So him and Marcus Rashford have this kind of alternating role situation going on, whereby Fernandez loves to drop into that left-hand touchline spot, but he also, as and when Rashford has the ball there, he's the one that's going to go beyond and try and, you know, and, and present and provide a target for Rashford to try and pick out. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the basis that works, and that that works really, really well, and that, as you mentioned, his arrival has kind of has almost almost solved the problem Man United have had for five years, which is just creativity and a lack of fluidity and that terrible, you know, watching them work work the ball through in the midfield under Van Gaal and you know more often Mourinho, it was like watching time slow down. Often it was just so slow and so pedestrian and so risk averse and all of a sudden Fernandez comes in and, and that completely changes and May United become one of the most attacking one of the most exciting uh, counter-attacking sides in the country they are exhilarating in a way that very few other teams are there is no way that you would disrupt that new dynamic with Fernandez. whether he played in a more complete or deeper role at Sporting is neither here nor there like once you once you're light on a solution like that you don't suddenly reinvent your midfield over the course of the summer to you know to deviate away from it. it just seems nonsensical and so i see the van bake transfer come in and I, I, i'm being slightly contrary by putting man united in my disappointments pile um i maybe i'm, I'm just an attention seeker I, I don't know um but <laughs> my thinking is that it represents some of the muddled thinking that exists higher up in the club sometimes it's it's united are kind of to, to me, I look at that side and I think there are maybe three spots which need strengthening. And if they were, if those, if those areas were um, fortified properly um, and with the right, right players, all of a sudden they're a contending side. As it is, you kind of you bought a very good player, but maybe not one who who really gets them anywhere closer to what they want to be. He provides depth. He'll provide competition. He's a sort of change of pace in the midfield because he does things that Pogba doesn't. I don't know. It's just it's just a strange one. It just feels like he's he's the best player available, and so we'll go and get him. That might be to do them a huge disservice, but it it just is suggestive of some of the problems that people have been commenting on for a really long time with United, and they're sort of it takes us back to one of the most tired topics in the whole of English football, which is their lack of a, a director of football, um, and that still feels like a, a problem. Yeah, it's it's very hard to disagree. I mean, on that note, I had a secondary biggest disappointment of the Ooh, season. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Uh, it's Dean Henderson. Interesting. Um, okay. Because I, you know, Dean Henderson is uh, an outstanding goalkeeper. Um, you know, he he was he saved probably close to five goals last season that he shouldn't have done based on post shot xG. Um, he was claiming almost eight percent of his crosses. He's a dominant, physically assertive, very capable shot stopper. And 
he's going to now sit on the bench behind De Gea, presumably, because it's very, very difficult to see De Gea being dropped. Um, I'm sure Henderson feels on the back of his season with Sheffield United that he should be able to come in and claim the, the first choice position there. And in my opinion, he absolutely should. Um, but I also would be quite surprised, pleasantly surprised, granted, but quite surprised if United started the season without De Gea in goal. Uh, and I think that it, it represents kind of a, a step back quite a significant step back for Henderson even if he gets to play in the cup competitions you know he even reminds me of it's Ben Foster so when when Man United first signed Ben Foster and went sent him back on loan to Watford he was absolutely brilliant and the conversation around him was was very similar to the one that um that has existed around Dean Henderson in that I, I think it's fair to say that Ben Foster is still absolutely excellent he he he's had a renaissance but my point would be that <clears throat> goalkeeping is a difficult thing and keeping goal for Manchester United and keeping goal for Sheffield United are two very, very different jobs. And what happened with Foster is when he came back to Man United, he was still the same excellent shot stopper. He, was still, he still had the same personality as a goalkeeper. The lights were a little bit bright for him, I think. All of a sudden, people started paying attention to um, his issues kicking. You know, from the floor, his distribution wasn't always the best, and he had a mistake in his game. Um, and what's worse is that at the time, and he was a much younger player. Let's not forget. Let's be fair. He was a much younger player when that transition happened. When he came to United and tried to become their number one, he didn't cope that well with the scrutiny. And so, I, I, I take your point. I, I think as long as David De Gea is at the club and earning what he does, I think he's going to be the first choice because. Um, just to have that amount of money sitting on your bench is is just a very difficult dynamic to cope with. But Henderson, it's almost like you you, you start from zero. Can you uh, can you be a Manchester United goalkeeper as opposed to um, someone with more regular involvement, someone who plays for a side who don't play in the same caliber of a fixture as United? It's different, um, and it just I, I think Henderson is a better goalkeeper than Foster. I completely agree also that that Foster has. Um, last couple of years has really kind of reclaimed his reputation and that that takes um you know that he's he's due enormous credit for that but i think it would be naive to think that the transition from bramwell lane to old trafford is a simple one because if you look back at united's goalkeeping history if you look at the kind of players that if you look at how difficult they found it to replace schmeichel mm. um that's very instructive because what they what they weren't necessarily replacing attributes they were replacing a personality and you can't know what the personality is until the person is in situ, if that makes sense. Um, and so that's a, that's a, that's a really interesting, um, that's a really interesting pick. Do you have anyone else in your disappointment pile? Um, no, I don't No, Okay. Cause I'm, it's cause I'm so positive and upbeat. You are quite an optimistic person. Almost, almost the point where it becomes quite annoying in like our yeah. WhatsApp groups. You just, you, you're too cheery. And fizzing oh, you so, just yeah, yeah it's just relentless your your kind of your <laughs> your 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 chirpy and perky and it's it's annoying anyway let's take a um a quick break and we will be back for surprises of the season thanks to our very good pals at beer52.com you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world all you need to do is go to beer52.com athletic and pay the postage of £4.95 and if all that wasn't enough as a listener to this TIFO podcast you'll get two extra beers chucked in for no additional cost so that's ten beers for F-R-E-E free 
Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They're now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. And the beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is in your hands and they deliver your beers straight to your front door. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine ferment and a beery snack is thrown in too. Just go to beer52.com athletic, that's A-T-H-L-E-T-I-C, to get your free case. And don't forget, right now, listeners get two extra free beers in their case. That's beer52.com athletic. Okay, I'm, I'm going to kick this one off because um, just in case you've picked the same one as me and I end up sounding less smart as a result of it, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to offer Lopetegui's Sevilla. Now that's not hugely revelatory because obviously they're they're in a a, um, a Europa League winning team, but it's interesting because before we came on the pod, I was looking through that kind of list of arrivals. Even Rakitic is the big one. He's joined. Uh, he's rejoined from Barcelona, but I look around also at the settled parts of that side. So particularly at centre back, I know you're a big Diego Carlos fan, um, and his partnership with Jules Condi was invaluable during the Europa League. Clearly. But they've also they've they've snagged Oscar Rodriguez on loan from Real Madrid. He's great. He had um he was at Leganets last season. Um and he's I don't know whether if he'll ever quite be good enough to play for Real Madrid. Um he's also in a bit of a queue there for his position. But I think as an attacking midfielder, as a kind of creative, skillful type, I think he'll be he's got big big boots to fill because Ever Benager is um I think he's off to Saudi Arabia. So he'll he'll leave a gap, but Oscar Rodriguez is an interesting one to fill it. Brian Gilles is returning from his loan. Um, Carlos Fernandez. Now Carlos Fernandez was in your sensible transfers picks. I forget for which club, but tell us a little bit about him. Uh, so I I was picking him as a kind of Karim Benzema replacement. Um, That's it yeah. for Real Madrid. He's he's an interesting player. Um, he kind of reminds me a little bit in terms of his movement and his stance uh, of Havertz actually okay he's a he's quite an upright runner he's he's surprisingly quick quite leggy um what I like about him and why I picked him for that particular thing is that last season he played as a 10 uh, behind Soldado um and his movement drifting particularly towards the left half space and linking in with other players and being a kind of focal point, but then somebody who once they've extricated themselves from that link play bursts forwards into the box and and offers a goal threat was really, really impressive and, and quite reminiscent of how Benzema gets involved in a deeper position and yet still manages to end up being the focal point of the attack. Um, he... He's still raw, like there's still some kind of, um, I don't want to say technical deficiencies, but occasionally he's not quite in the right place at the right time or there's a, a slightly heavy touch. But I think he has the tools to to go, not necessarily beyond severe, but to elevate what severe are currently doing. And I think, like you say, they've, they've added some astute signings. I mean, Rakitic is... He's getting on a little bit, but he basically he's still a very good player, and 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 he costs them next to nothing. Um, and you know, this this is a team who consistently uh, does well in Europe. That that is in some regards greater than the sum of its parts. Um, I think, yeah, I think it, there's possibly um, possibly a good. I mean, when you say surprise, yeah. 
Do you what do you mean challenging the duopoly? No, I think they're a Champions League dark horse. Um and I tell you why. Um they're built for knockout football, as we've seen. And also, mm-hmm. obviously, historically, you associate um, Sevilla with knockout football, particularly um, continental knockout football. I just think the sort of the base that they're growing from um, is really interesting. I also think um, that uh, I don't think they'll win the Champions League. I just think they'll do a lot better than people think. I think they have a chance of being quite interesting domestically because uh, I expect Barcelona to be an absolute bin fire next season, like just about everybody else. Um Good luck with that, Ronald Koeman. Uh, Real Madrid remain formidable. Uh, they are obviously continue to be an extremely talented side, and also a couple of their younger players are going to be a year further on. Thinking of Vinicius and also Rodrigo, who I, I really like. Bit of a suspect personality, by all accounts, but really, really talented footballer. Um, and I just think there's a there's a little bit of a space for them to grow. Um, now, this is kind of based on the presumption that, you know, Benega stepping out of that side doesn't um, cause a huge problem. And it all sounds great in theory. I just anywhere I like anywhere I see a developing partnership in the central defense and also an upgrade at the top of the pitch, which I think Fernandez is on a player like Luke de Jong as well as he's done. I think Luke de Jong is a kind of um, feels a bit placeholdery to me. That might be terribly harsh given um, the goals he scored and how important they've been. Um but I think there's quite a lot of talent coming in there. And adding Rakitic, Rakitic at Barcelona was uh, someone to get off the wage bill. Rakitic at Sevilla feels like a sort of Cambiasso at Leicester City type situation where you bring in the guy that's won it all. Um, mm. And you, I mean, if you're going to lose Benega, then it's pretty convenient to be able to, although they're not the same kind of player, player pretty convenient to be able to drop Rakitic into your midfield without missing a beat I think that's um that's very interesting so right your surprise of the season though um well I'm just gonna off the back of what you've said this isn't my answer but I would also tip my hat to Villarreal um who I think in recruiting Pareo Coquelin they've done very very well they've got Alcazar they've got Baca they've got Pau Torres who's a really really interesting centre-back um, you know, I, I remember them from the sort of Marcos Senna, uh, Raquel May <laughs> days. Raquel May days, yes. And I've always had, I wouldn't say an affection for them because I don't really follow any Spanish team, but, you know, they, they, were, they were fun. You're, uh, you're also, I, you're not big on the old affection generally, are you? No, that, not, that's, <laughs> that's also true. You're not an affectionate <laughs> man. <laughs> no, no, not really. Um, but uh, yes, I, I think I think VRL could be really interesting. Um, my my surprise of the season, properly though, I think, yeah. um, is Kalechi and Nacho. Interesting. Okay, let, let's let's hear this then. Okay. So this this initially stemmed from the video that we did about Jamie Vardy, um, and looking at. Uh, every one of Jamie Vardy's first 100 goals and one of the things that really really caught the eye was the absolutely sublime quality of some of Iheanacho's through balls to him really really smart player Um, obviously he came to Leicester as a striker um, and I think there's a kind of a slight bias there in terms of you know size and and physicality and so on assuming that he would that he would play as a front man um but actually this is something that brendan rogers did do on occasion this uh past season he looks really really effective as a 10 Mm -hmm. um he is 
in many, many respects, as I've said, not the kind of stereotypical 10. Um, he does offer a goal threat and he does get forwards. But there is something about the way that he has an eye for a pass, particularly the kind of pass that, that Vardy feeds off. I think Leicester are building a, quite an intriguing attacking unit there. And Iheanacho only played 960 minutes last season, um, but his non-penalty XG and XA combined was 0 0.68, uh, which puts him 22nd out of everybody in the Premier League, including lots and lots of people who only played, you know, 20 or 30 minutes. And so they have an inflated value. Hey, so let me just pause you there. Um, do you want to explain that metric for people that don't quite understand it? Because obviously in video, it's a little bit easier to follow. But for those, uh, you know, for Luddites like me, walk me through it. What is that uh, measuring? Okay, so um, expected goals... Um, is is the measure based in probability uh, in a compared to historical precedent? Basically, how likely uh, a shot is to result in a goal. Okay. So, if you think about the penalty area, the closer you are to the centre of the penalty area, the higher the expected goal. Um, the further out wide you are, or the deeper you are away from the goal, the lower the expected goals. Non-penalty expected goals simply takes penalties out of that equation because penalties have uh, a slightly higher XG value um, because of the circumstances. So it's it's a purer measure of striking ability. Uh, expected assists is essentially the measure that a pass that leads to a shot will then have that shot become a goal, um, based in the same sort of measure that that they you know they've historically looked at all of the passes that led to shots and then extrapolated from those passes which were likely to to create a goal and which weren't and so if you're if you're combining non-penalty xg and xa together you get probably the simplest clearest measure of how consistently an attacker contributes in an all-round way to his team's goal scoring threat lovely you may proceed thank you so yeah, Ian Acho. I think if if Brendan Rodgers, uh, you know, obviously he's going to persist with Vardy up front because Vardy is a goal machine despite his age um, and Leicester have adapted under Rodgers. They are playing a more possession style of football, less direct, less counter-attacking. Vardy's incredibly intelligent penalty box movement has adapted to that really nicely. But playing alongside people like Harvey Barnes, uh, Damari Gray even Mark Albrighton still, I think if you start playing a 4-2-3-1 with Iheanacho in the 10 slot, um, you could see Leicester doing some really exciting things. Oh, and I've forgotten James Madison as well. So, you know, there's there's a there's a huge amount of potential there and possibly the only thing that might stop Iheanacho developing into that kind of player is simply the, the wealth of attacking talent around him and how Rodgers chooses to use that. Um, but he's a very smart player, and I think if he's given time, he could really surprise people. Yeah, I agree. Like he's he's one of those players. He's an example of what happens to a player when they wash out of a really big club, when you're not really given a chance to to stake a name for yourself, or even actually, and this is pertinent for Ian Acho, an identity, because there are a lot of people that still think of him as a nine, who still think that he's a goal scorer. And I remember when he came through, um, I got a couple of um, a couple of Nigerian followers on Twitter. And they said no, he's not a he is not a, a pure goal scorer in the well the Jamie Vardy sense. He's very much a ten. He has the ability to carry the ball over long distances. Perhaps what's let him down a little bit until now is knowing when to release a pass. 
Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes there is an extra touch. When he gets to, so when he gets to that area, which is about 10 yards outside the penalty box, sometimes there's a wrong decision. But I, I think that's more a system issue. That's more of a kind of um, uh, a lack of chemistry rather than a deficiency in the player himself. So that's really, really interesting. Um, okay, let's take another break and then we're going to come back and talk about successful units which feels like it's a very tifo thing to do it's very cold and analytical so we'll uh, <laughs> we'll we'll do that yes that music means one thing and one thing only the offside rule wsl edition is back woohoo and the wsl is bigger and better than ever before which means we need to do the same that's why we've got interviews with the biggest names, the brightest minds in the game, as well as all the in-depth match analysis you've come to know and love. Just search for the Offside Rule WSL edition, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can find us ad-free on the Athletic app. That's the Offside Rule WSL edition, out every Tuesday. Right, Alex. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna move away from signings, and we're gonna look at combinations and departments of teams. Uh, and again, you got the broadest possible brief for this. You can go anywhere for it. Uh, who are we looking at as a most successful unit in 2021? I'm gonna be biased here. Oh, lovely. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to pick Southampton's defence. Bold, bold, <laughs> yeah. bold, bold. Okay, let's hear yeah. it. Well, okay. The, the other obvious answers are things like Manchester United's front four, Liverpool's front no, three. boring, boring, boring. No, let's, exactly. let's, let's be contrary. So Southampton have signed Mohamed Salasu uh, from uh, Real Valladolid. I said that correctly. Um, they've also managed to snag Carl Walker-Peters uh, from Spurs, who I know you said um, never quite convinced as a Spurs player. I can't profess to having watched him um, for Spurs, but he convinced me as as a Southampton fullback. They are adding that to uh, Jan Bednarak, who uh, is, uh, I think, an excellent defender, um, one of the better ones outside of the top six, actually, uh, and weighs in really, really heavily with clearances and blocks, particularly quite a kind of old-fashioned defender in that way, but can also pass the ball well. And then the player on the left, Ryan Bertrand, I think is the the greatest recent mystery in England squad selections, which is why Ryan Bertrand hasn't been called up again. Um, Mm -hmm. He excelled last season and he is a very, very smart player. He's tactically astute. Uh, He still has a fantastic engine. Um, He's one of those players who, you know, came away from a, a bigger club uh, in Chelsea, um, but has really, really excelled in a slightly smaller and more intimate setting. And then behind them, you've got Alex McCarthy, who, when I looked at the the stats for England goalkeepers recently, massively surprised me with with how statistically well he's done. You know, saving a good four or five more goals than than one would have expected. Pretty dominant when it comes to crosses. A good distributor of the ball. Um, you know, clearly has a good working relationship with that defence, which also includes people like Jack Stevens, who who played really, really well. I'm thinking of the the two Manchester games towards the tail end of of the um, post COVID restart. Stevens excelled in both of those games. I think the reason that you also add that is that, well, there's two things to say. Firstly, is that Southampton are a team who, uh, going back a little bit, 
were very, very bad at scoring goals, but were really, really good at, at not conceding them. Um, there was a season, I think it was 2017-18, where although they finished mid-table, they had the second best goals against and, and only Chelsea, who won the title, um, bettered them. So, you know, there, there's a there's a foundation there of, of a style of play that Southampton are used to. I also think Ralph Hasenhutl has now got enough of a handle on the squad and getting the squad to play well and getting this counter-pressing system going, marshalling the midfield in front of that defensive line, that actually Southampton... I, I mean, I didn't want to be so bolshy as to put them in my surprise of the season, but I think Southampton look like a team that are going places rather than a team that is maybe stagnating a little bit, like some of the other teams that are traditionally in that bracket are. Um, and, you know, particularly with the acquisition of Salasu, I think that that's really, really smart. And they could build on that excellent defence uh, to surprise people a little bit. That's what I'm hoping anyway. Actually, I'll surprise you. I like Carl Walker-Peters. I think... Um, I think it's an incredibly smart bit of business from Southampton. It's one of those situations actually where everybody won because Walker Peters' issue at Spurs was, well, there were two problems. Firstly, that he was in line to succeed uh, Carl Walker and Kieran Trippier. And that's not really fair. That's not a good situation to be in because he's not comparable really to either player. He's kind of the midpoint between the two, um, if that makes sense. And also... I, I think he was actually one of Pochettino's great mistakes because every now and again he'd get a chance. I remember him having a very good game uh, away at Newcastle on the opening day of the season about three or four years ago. And then he vanished from the side. I also remember him, he was thrown into a must-not-lose Champions League game at Camp Nou against Barcelona. Um, that was actually, I think, his Champions League, his first Champions League start. And he made a terrible mistake in the in the first half and Usman Dembele ran in and, and scored. And I think you've got to be fair to a player like that. If you if you put him into that situation and he makes a mistake, you've got to allow him another five to ten games to to reestablish his equilibrium. Because if you if you say to a player, right, I need you to go into a job and I need you to do it against Barcelona. Okay, there it was a weakened side, but it's still Barcelona and it's still an intimidating game. And then you take him out of the the, the, the team immediately afterwards. I mean, I'm not sure what you really expect to happen to the player. And so he was very, very much someone who, who needed a change of scenery, who also needed needed someone who had faith in him. And I think the idea of, I think the act, Southampton's act of pursuing him, and I know they're separate deals, but essentially giving up Hoiberg to uh, to secure him in a way, because they, those two deals um, kind of complemented each other. I think that's got to be really reassuring for a player like him who hasn't found a home, who isn't really seen yet as a full-time Premier League footballer. And I, I think, um, I think there's, there's, I don't think there's an England player there. I think there's someone that can be a better player within the top half of the league. Certainly, he's got, um, he's got a lot of abilities. So I, I, I like him. I just. Um, Every now and again, you and, and this happens at a lot of clubs, where especially clubs with large squads where there's there's turnover, you get people that fall between the cracks who don't have opportunity at the right time or have them um, in moments that actually damage them a little bit and destroy their confidence. And I, I think that's probably what happened to him. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very fair. I also think in terms of the way he plays. Um, you know he he is quite an attacking fullback. His ball carrying is particularly strong, 
um, and the the kind of slightly chaotic dynamism that Hassan Hootel is bringing to Southampton suits his style of play more than a more conservative fullback. Uh, I also think Hassan Hootel is a particularly good manager at giving confidence to younger players. The way he's talked about Will Smallbone, for example, um, and I'm I'm disappointed that Harrison Reed has gone to Fulham, although I can understand why. Good money but, for Harrison Reed, though. I understand. Yeah, that. It's, it is good money for Harrison Reed. Um, I, yes, I do. I'm. I mean, I I just have an affection for him because I remember him coming through. But I think you know if you're if you're Hassan Hootel and you're giving opportunities to people like Jake Vokens and Michael Obafemi, uh, Will Smallbone, you know, there's clearly a culture there. Carl Walker Peters is a little bit older than that, obviously, but still somebody who has, I would argue, the majority of his career ahead of him rather than behind him. And he's he's going to see this as, as a culture in which youth or younger players or cast-offs even are invested in and given a good opportunity. Uh, and I also imagine that particularly given the turnaround after the 9-0 and then arguably almost a worse result than the 2-1 uh, loss at home to Everton, which is still probably the worst game of football I've ever watched. Um, then, you know, he's... The, 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 the renaissance of Southampton in, in the second half of the season has got to create a huge buzz around the dressing room. The players clearly are buying into what's happening there. And I think it's a really exciting time to be at that club. And if you're joining it, having had a successful loan period, being part of some really, really good results towards the end of the season, and you've got a manager who wants to play young, exciting players, like there couldn't be a better place for him. I think the worst game I saw last season was Watford against Burnley. Um, was it just really dull? It was just one of those where it was. I, I can't remember why, but there was there was there was. I was covering it. Might have been the season before. It seems like a years ago now. Um, so I might have been that uh, my my mind might have been disrupted by the uh, the COVID break. Um, but it was um, there was some disruption on the train getting up to to Watford, so I had to get up unreasonably early. And it was goalless and absolutely dreadful. And I just remember sitting there thinking, God, this can absolutely just fuck off. This is just awful. <laughs> um, anyway, right. My, um, my, my strong units. I've, I've been staggeringly unoriginal. Um, I've picked two midfields, but with good reason. Um, the, the first is, is Juventus. Um, now, there are some other issues in that side which, are, um, which need addressing long term, I think. Um, a little bit of rejuvenation in the fullback position definitely wouldn't hurt there. Um, but I like the midfield because I like the addition of Artur. All of a sudden, you you have him alongside Bentancourt and Rabiot. And that's, to me, and I accept entirely that uh, we still don't really know what Andrea Perlo is going to be. Well, he could be anything at all, really. But in theory, that could be a very nicely balanced midfield and can do some lovely things. And it's also got three players in it who I, who I think blend pretty nicely and who I enjoy watching individually. Uh, and so I'm excited about that. I don't, um, I don't think it's going to be enough to take Juventus to where they want to be. Every Juventus season starts with the, you know, with the Champions League in mind. Obviously, um, Serie A title is almost a given at this point. Uh, but I think that's moving in the right direction. Um, Matuidi is gone. Um, obviously, Pjanic has gone the other way to Barcelona. So all of a sudden, you, you've got two 30-plus-year-olds. Um, <laughs> both of those are off the wage bill uh, and replaced essentially by younger versions different types of player but it just feels a little bit healthier um and the second midfield is surprisingly enough tottenham's i like it 
I I don't know whether I've been seduced by the version of Jose Mourinho I saw in All or Nothing, uh, who um, I've, maybe I've been kind of sports washed by Mourinho. I've been I've been conned by by his routine, but I like I like parts of what I saw at the end of last season. I like the cynicism and the nastiness about Spurs. And I really like Hoiberg as a player. I think at Southampton, he wasn't ever quite surrounded by the right players. Uh, I don't think he's a world beater. I certainly don't think he's the character that existed in um, Marty Perrineau's book. Um, I'm not falling for the kind of the, you know, the 17-year-old apple of Pep Guardiola's eye. That player never <laughs> existed. What I do like is a midfield which pairs him with Giovanni Lothelso. Mm. Um, and, and this is a big, big if, uh, if Mourinho can motivate Tangi Ndombele. Um He's uh, an absolute riddle to me, man. Like, I've got no idea what he is. I mean, he's obviously obscenely talented, but um, in terms of uh, in terms of his body language and application, I, I've never seen anything quite like it. Um, I have absolutely no diagnosis for that problem at all, um, other than to say maybe he's just too gifted. I'm not sure. Um, but um, all things going well, if you were able to pair those three players together on a regular basis, I think you have a hell of a midfield which is also supplemented by Harry Winks, by Musa Sissoko. You know, like there's some... Um, Oliver Skip is, is going out on loan for the year. He's gone to Norwich. But in a year's time, I mean, he's another very good player. Um, so I, I like where that's headed. Um, I think it's kind of... Um, you know, I, I think it, I think it's suited Mourinho. People have been very down on Spurs, and for good reason. But I think as a result, they'll come back. And they won't be a contender, but they'll be... They will be horrible to play against, I think. Um, and uh, I'm excited about that. Again, a little bit biased, but still, um, credit where it's due. Good transfer business. Um, we're gonna. Uh, do you want to? You want to? You want to contradict me? I can hear it in your. No, no, no. Your no, microphone. Absolutely no. Not even slightly. Um, I mean, I think I think that midfield three that you listed there has real potential to be good. Um, I think that Lacelso is a very underrated presser. Yeah. Um, and has a bit of edge to him that I really like, as well as his, you know, ball carrying and passing. I think Ndombele excelled most when he was in a really, really beautifully balanced midfield three, going back to the Lyon days when he was uh, lining up on the right-hand side of Lucas Toussaint um, with Hesse Moir on the left-hand side. And I can see parallels there. Uh, I, I can see a group of players not not like-for-like like fits, um, but a similar degree of balance that lets Ndombele carry the ball forwards, break the press, use his athleticism, which, you know, he, he can't, when he's playing well, that's what he offers. But with Hoiberg kind of anchoring it, you know, he's, he's not a deep-lying, you know, kind of a screening midfielder, no, no. but he does give you pressing. He gives you really good positional awareness and ball recovery, and he can act as the base for quite a fluid midfield three, I think. Uh, you know, he's not like a Matic-style anchor, but there's enough defensive presence there. And I think if Spurs look for a dynamic pressing midfield, that's the three that I would go for, and I think they could really excel. You know what's just occurred to me is that we haven't recorded this podcast, just you and me, before, and quite a few people say that we sound the same. So <laughs> <laughs> it could just be like one rambling monologue of this the same person feel yeah incredibly <laughs> yeah I tell you, joe will never let this happen again ever 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 no right we're gonna have one more break and then we're gonna come back and uh 
oh, this was the rubbish section. I, I wrote this section when it was a, it was about 11.30 at night, so it might turn out badly, but it's kind of a, it's an aspiration <laughs> uh, section. What, what, what do we want to happen, essentially? So um, give us a couple of minutes and we'll come back and do that. Right, Alex, when I think of you, I do just, um, you're associated with aspiration, happiness, optimism, hope for the best. That, that is very much your mentality. <laughs> I've spent yeah, enough time yeah, with you on yeah. Zoom during the lockdown to know this. I've known you for a long time now. So um, what do you want to happen next season? Um, I mean, and it's also, it's I not like like Y Scout releasing a new like category or like someone coming out with a new <laughs> analytics metric. That's just cheating. So that's not allowed. Oh, okay. I shall scrub a couple of things off my yeah, list. Yeah, go, go um, to the fifth thing on your list. No. <laughs> Yes. Well, okay, there's there's a few things. Um, the first is that I really want Ryan Bertram to get an England call-up. Um, that would make me happy, uh, insofar as anything does. Um, <laughs> I, I also want, in terms of uh, really astute business that's been conducted this transfer window, I want Eberecci Etsy to set the Premier League on fire, um, because I think he's an awesome player. And I think Palace have lacked a bit of dynamism aside from Zaha. Um, but there's there's some good kind of fundamental players there. Etze thrown into that mix with his ability to score and create could genuinely have a breakthrough season. And I think that would be that would be a really nice story because you know, he's he's come up from the championship having done very, very well there, yeah. but it's a sensible move. He, no one overpaid for him. Arguably, you know, I think QPR could probably have extracted a little bit more yeah. from Palace for it. If, it. if this was a different market, I think you get probably 25 for him. Um, yeah. Different yeah. situation. Yeah. You know, I, but I think he's got a really high ceiling um, and he's just such a fun player to watch. And I think if you're if you're a Palace fan, your your fun has been largely restricted to, to Wilfred Zaha and Milivojevic penalties. So, you know, I think it could be, again, like quite a transformative signing for them. In terms of other signings, um, please somebody buy Ibrahim Sangare because <laughs> because it's kind of becoming a joke now. It's um, not kind of becoming a joke. It is one. Like, honestly, the, you should see our Twitter feed today. There are There are... Like we're being accused of all sorts. Like I think at some point someone someone actually accuses you of being his agent. So um, we need that to happen quite quickly. Someone needs to buy him, um, and and also somebody needs to bring um, Sasha Zadilia from uh, Partizan Belgrade to a, a good European club um, because I I genuinely think he's one of the most underrated central midfielders I, in I, Europe. So I, I give you the entire footballing world and free choice over stuff you want to see happen, and that. <laughs> That's what you come back with. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, what else do I want to see happen? Um, oh, I don't know, man. Like, so, someone setting see... fire to VAR or like, you know. Oh, God. No, I don't think in abstract terms like that. It's not possible. Okay. Um, right. it, it's very, very difficult. No, I, I mean, there are there are players that I want to see. I want to see Cuisance do really well yeah. at Bayern Munich, for example. Uh, I want Bayern Munich to give Angelo Stiller some time because I think he's a really promising signing. Uh, I'd like to see Curtis Jones get minutes for Liverpool um, because I, I think he could be really, really good. But in terms of, of the stuff that happens like off the pitch in terms of, you know, VAR and, and that kind of thing, it, it's, it's it's quite difficult for me to care about that stuff, really, because it, it 
it either happens or it doesn't happen. What what I feel about it is essentially irrelevant. Um, I, I'd like to see fans back in a safe way, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I'm very excited that uh, I think on the 12th of September, Winchester City have uh, fans for their FA Cup qualifying round game. That'll be the first time I will, if I if I manage to get a ticket, it'll be the first time I've seen live football since God knows when. So, so that's nice. And I, I am genuinely looking forward to that up the winch um but beyond that no i i i want to see young players coming through and doing good football that's that's really it see it's like joe's already here like young players coming through and doing good football that's a that's a (laughs) that's a divinism if ever there was one i've got one um and it's uh it's a strange one it's more something that i don't want to see happen i don't want sheffield united to regress i don't want them to have the the difficult second season because I feel mm. like if they do it comes with a little bit of a subtext um, and a sort of a cackling told you so from a lot of people that I just I, I just whose commentary I just cannot bear on the game um, I think of all the teams uh, who were disrespected last season I think Sheffield United spent probably about six months being described as a long ball team <laughs> as being typical of their region typical of their manager um, of not being able to do X, Y, and Z. And it hacked me off, man, because like I, I, I covered I covered their game at Bournemouth on the first day of last season. And I remember um, it was, I, was, I was writing a piece of Football 365 and um, I sent an email to, to Sarah Winterburn saying, they won't just stay up, they'll stay up and they'll finish in the top half. Just because um, their systems were so well-oiled, so complex, they were so disciplined, they defended so well. Um, and it was very clear that they were much, much, much better in that context than anybody had given credit for. Um, and sure, that was a bit knee-jerky, and it, you know, turned out well for me. And you know, I'm bringing it up because it makes me sound astute, no doubt. But at the same time, it annoyed me that so many people spent, so many people who have very nice media jobs, spent the rest of you know, the rest of the year really just trotting out bollocks. And it, it was it, it was kind of symptomatic of something I really resent about um, the old style pundit, punditocracy. That, does that work? <laughs> yeah, I think you can you can coin that term. Sure, yeah, I don't think I'm coining it, but I, at least I'm pronouncing it right. Um, I think you need to name names. No, I won't do that because the names the names jump out. You know, people people know who I'm referring to. It was just um, it was indicative of this kind of uh, this uh, stream of laziness which runs through. Um, English football and this kind of assumptions and the sort of assumptions which are based on um, you know regional variations and accents and uh, it just annoyed me and I I feel that if um, if for instance Sheffield United had sold an influential player say they'd they'd been um, they'd been forced to sell John Fleck or or Egan for instance that's probably the better example I mean they've lost Dean Henson but Ramsdale's a a good goalkeeper so I guess they're, they're okay on that front um but there would have been this kind of willful denial and willful ignorance and be like, yeah, well, we told you so. It was just a fluke of the, uh, you know, fluke of the season. It was odd, you know, COVID, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just nonsense. Like Wilder still doesn't get the credit deserved for what he's achieved. Um, you know, you look at you look at those players, where they came from, the amount of money that was spent to to assemble them. It's a remarkable achievement. And I just, it just, it grated at me all year. 
I don't know. Well, maybe I was, I was, I was going through a, a particularly bad time or I was in a bad mood for the whole of the season or something. But <laughs> it just it annoyed me week in, week out. And um, so I, I hope they repeat it. They don't need to, um, you know, they don't need to challenge for Europe or anything, but another strong top half finish. And I think, you know, it kind of compounds the humiliation felt by people that sort of, that were so dismissive and patronising. Um, I, I was weirdly passionate about that, wasn't I? That was that, that. That's uncorked something in me. I think that's right. I mean, I I do worry a little bit about Ramsdale. Um, I'm not. I'm not. He's not as good as Henderson. Convinced. Well, no, but I mean, he's a good goalkeeper. He's not based um, on what I said before. I'm not sure many people are as good as Henderson. But yeah, I mean, I, I think. I think that is a downgrade. Um, Sheffield United were kind of gnawing away in the the periphery of my consciousness when I was preparing for this podcast because <laughs> graphic because they, they they are an odd team in in the sense that you know yes stylistically their closest analog in European football is probably Atalanta. They have a a group of players that have in some instances come up with the club from the League One days and, and they've added intelligently with Sander Berg, I think. But, you know, they, they haven't gone out and splashed lots of money otherwise. Like Ramsdale was 18 and a half. But um, I think Ollie McBurney could turn out to be a really good striker. I think if Lise Mousset, um gets his fitness issues right, he could be a really good striker. But they they have always looked a little bit weak up top for me. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I was... I was definitely stronger on Norwich coming up than I was on Sheffield United. Um, And that was obviously cataclysmically incorrect. Um, But Norwich played heavily to my biases uh, of... Hey, man, I I had Bournemouth breaking into Europe. (laughs) Okay, yeah, sure. So we we, we all get stuff wrong every now and again. Um, But no, I mean, you know, I, 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 I... I figured that that Norwich, like Sheffield United, I think there was there was a, a similarity in the fact that they they both had systems that were very clearly there and and that they adhered to very strongly. But I, I just thought Norwich would have the edge because of pace, because of really promising young players, because of the pressing system. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's I think that's a good shout. I mean, you know, Sheffield United are a phenomenally well coached team. And and Chris Wilder and also Alan Nil, I think, deserves huge, huge credit for what Set he does on the tactical side. Yeah, 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 that as well. Um, you know, I, I kind of feel not dissimilarly, I think, about Wolves. I mean, Wolves suffer from the fact that, that their squad in the championship was very expensively assembled and they sort of blew the championship away in part because of that and obviously leveraged you know an agent relationship to help create that team and and sign players of of a caliber far exceeding what would normally be seen in the championship but they are another brilliantly coached team um uh, the loss of Doherty I think will be felt by them um but you know in terms for example of what Nuno's done with Adama Traore uh, with Raul Jimenez, with Connor Cody, you know, you've you've got again a really really clever coach there who is from a slightly unfashionable team with not a huge number of necessarily star names or at least a balance of players that have have come up from the championship and been there in in slightly rougher days. Um, and again, I don't think they get the credit they deserve. Um, so yeah, let's 
overthrow the punditocracy. How's that? Nice. nice. Is that? Yeah. W- while you were talking, although I, I was definitely listening. Um, of course. While, while you were talking, I thought of another thing. You know, the thing I actually want to see happen more than just about anything is I want to see a goalkeeper sent off for time wasting. I want to see a second yellow card for a goalkeeper who has taken his fourth three minute long goal kick of the game. Just do it. I, I tell you, uh, whichever referee does it, I, you will honestly, that, that's kind of, that's enough to, 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 to become a hero um, in my eyes for a lifetime. Just because but it'll, it'll be Hugo Lloris, so that's I, uh, that's fine. I mean, greater good and uh, Lloris. Well, maybe we've we've had an entire podcast on this, so I don't want to retread over old ground. But um, it's it's baffling um, how little vigilance there is in the in the kind of the um, over over time wasting and, and sort of the we still suffer with referees suffer through referees um, who are unable to kind of to add on time that's lost during injury time it's like it's a it's a concept which is too complicated for them it's you know we're two minutes into stoppage time a player goes down with cramp we lose 45 seconds of the game and we get 10 seconds added on at the end of it why is that so difficult like why, why are we messing around with things like var if the concept of time is still befuddling us <laughs> It's been, I tell you, man, it's, it's been a, it's been a long lockdown for me. <laughs> that, that's quite an existential thing to to wrap up on, I guess. I think that should probably be the end of the podcast. Now, uh, Joe wraps up with all kinds of whimsy. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to instead say, Alex and I will be back in a couple of days. We are going to be we're having a little bit of a fancy footballathon on T5 football next week. So got a couple of videos um and we've also we're also going to be joined by uh fpl general uh mark who's going to take aim at our fancy teams talk a little bit about what life is like as a as a professional fpl player uh and how he got to that and some of the um some of the the disciplines that required uh i, I spoke to mark about a week ago it's absolutely fascinating uh, it's uh, there's so many things which never even occurred to me so um i'm going to record that tomorrow night and release it next tuesday so that should be fascinating. And in the meantime, I don't have anything else to say. Alex? Uh, subscribe to The Athletic at theathletic.com forward slash TIFO transfers, uh, or Joe will personally come round to your house and beast you. And, um, oh, don't say beast. That, that sounds weird. That's, that's a horrible <laughs> mental image. Um, and if someone was to do that, how much money would they be saving? That's the kind of thing Joe usually says here. A considerable amount. I think it's up to about 40% at the moment. Uh, Right, well, there you go. That really is a good deal. Okay, well, thank you very, very much for joining us, and we shall talk to you again soon. Bye.